I can build the greatest walls, the deepest kind of moats. It's like strong gates. I have big locks on those gates. If nobody is protecting that kind of wall and knows what to do if uh, an adversary is coming in, they just use a ladder and climb over it. And it's a kind of done deal, right? I feel it's exactly the same thing when it comes to security. It's mainly about people and processes first. And then we can see how we can use technology as a force multiplier, as something that enables certain things that we couldn't do otherwise. Welcome to Code to Cloud. I'm Andy Schneider, and today I have the privilege to speaking to Gerald Bichel. Gerald is the CEO of Sprinkler, the leader in customer experience management, serving companies like Microsoft, Procter Gamble, and 50% of the Fortune 100. Gerald has nearly 30 years of experience in IT, having served in leadership roles at companies like Mitre, Demandware, and LogMeIn, and he's also a cybersecurity consultant and advisor. Gerald, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andy, for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So let's dive into it. Let's move to your current role at Sprinkler. So what is the scope of your responsibilities right now? And, or how would you describe your current role? I am responsible and accountable for building and maintaining a security program that supports the requirements set forth by our customers, in some cases by regulators or, or other entities, for Sprinkler, for, for what we have to deliver as part of our services and as part of us being a public company. So that encompasses uh, having a good understanding of the back office uh, uh, of the company, the corporate IT systems, the enterprise applications, how they fit together, it's like what's happening there, it's like how the overall um, environment is set up and run but it also includes us being a SaaS company our production uh, environment from ideation through development through testing and deploy uh, initial deployment through the productive life cycle monitoring uh, ultimately to retirement of the versions that we have so it's like um, it, it really covers a very very broad spectrum product security it covers detection and response and the security operations It covers also customer-facing support from a security perspective. It addresses risk management, compliance, overall governance and system of the company. It includes training, exercising, and ultimately crisis communications if something goes haywire. And it has to be tied together through a sensible program management approach that really makes sure that we keep things on track. So the scope is really quote-unquote, the company or the ecosystem that we create with our partners and with our customers. We work with a lot of partners, so we have to make sure that we uh, understand vendor risk posture, partner posture, et cetera, et cetera, in order to make sure that we end up at a, um, a place where we can stand behind our product from a security perspective and data, data protection perspective. From an, uh, let's say, infrastructure perspective, are you a pure cloud company or do you also have like on-prem environments still we are pure cloud we basically don't own any servers which is almost completely true it's like it's not entirely true but it's like for all practical purposes as we like to say uh it's true so we run the corporate backend on uh SaaS solutions we run our production infrastructure on appropriate uh, public cloud providers so from that perspective we really only own a few network equipment boxes in some of the uh, office facilities. Uh, we own some laptops, of course, as well, some mobile devices. And that's pretty much the extent of uh, where we are, which makes it very interesting. 
So um, if you if you look at your current Caesar role, that is really covering like the whole range of security, like it sounds. What would you say are your top priorities or concerns? Usually, the expectation is to hear, well, it's like I'm really uh, most concerned about identity and access management, or it's like patching or whatever else, right? I think the first and most important thing from an organizational perspective, and I see myself as a as someone who really lives not only in some technology world, but is really part of the overall larger organization. In that role, I think um, the most important aspect is to help and foster a security culture that is driven by our employees, by our contractors, by our larger ecosystem, and really instills what I like to call a culture of security instead of like focusing on one specific technology area or another. Obviously, it's like we are a technology company, so we have to deal a lot with technology, not only as an enabler, but also the subject of our security program. But at the same time, I, I love to go back to what we were saying before, it's like people process technology and really keeping it in that order. It's like I can build the greatest walls, the deepest kind of moats, it's like strong gates, I have big locks on those gates. If nobody is protecting that kind of wall and knows what to do if uh, an adversary is coming in, they just use a letter and climb over it. And it's a kind of done deal, right? And I feel it's exactly the same thing when it comes to security. It's mainly about people and processes first, And then we can see how we can use technology as a force multiplier, as something that enables certain things that we couldn't do otherwise. So when you ask me what keeps you up at night, it's really making sure that all of our employees, all of our customers, all of our partners are enabled to do the right things when it comes to a security perspective, that we are doing a good enough job as a security team to educate, teach, identify issues, and then help fix them. I think that is really what keeps me up at night. It's like that we're really staying on top of that game. Absolutely. Culture eats everything for breakfast. So, and people are the most important part of the culture. What are you doing to, to enable people doing the right things? Well, as the saying goes, education is upstream of culture, right? So uh, it has to start with the education. And I think that is really a very important aspect thereof. If security education for a company or organization consists of a quarterly or annual set of 10 slides presented in some boring computer-based training where monotone voice drones down. It's like that you have to uh, be better with your passwords. This is not really sticky, right? I mean, do we have to do this sometimes? Yes, we. Act. unfortunately, we have to do this. There are people that still believe that this is a great way of doing security. So um, it is probably part and parcel of that. It also addresses some areas where people are not necessarily, have not been exposed to that before. But I, being exposed to it for the 20th, 30th, 40th times, like, okay, it's like, I'm not really getting a lot out of it. So I think one of the key areas is that you have to make sure that you really have training and education in context of the work of the people that you're trying to train and educate. So a classic example of what is actually a good way of educating from my perspective is um, phishing training. If you really send out realistic phishing emails into somebody's mail client that they're using in some form or another in order to figure out like how well they are trained to uh, identify a particular fish. And that is really very contextual. It is very applicable to the security problem at hand. And it also offers the possibility of instant gratification or instant uh, training if something goes haywire. Somebody gets a phishing email, they click on the link, 
that we want them to click on. It's like, you can pop up a screen saying, it's like, you've just been fished. It's like, here's like a five-minute reminder how you can better identify fishes. That makes it much more tangible. But it's also true for if you go in and have um, gamification of development through the CTFs, for example, or through other hacking kind of contests. It's also true if you uh, can gamify through uh, red or purple team exercising. So really bringing the adversaries or the potential challenges into the day-to-day life environment of the people you want to train, I think, is the key part of making education successful. Once you can start to really relate security issues to that in a very concrete and tangible way, education sticks much better. And I think that is how you build education over time. Now, everything I described so far is much of a grassroots kind of effect, right? It's like you you really reach out to a broad swath of employees. You want to teach them, you want to help them. And there's, there's different levels of willingness or time prioritization to get this done. I think it always needs to come also with the right tone from the top, quote unquote. It's like we all love that phrase, I guess. If the leadership of the company or the organization represented in the board or the uh, respective executive leadership teams are not really behind this and are saying, yeah, we do security, awesome job, yeah, go go security, but don't really expose that or it's like live that kind of required behavior in their respective areas, it becomes very difficult because it doesn't come over as sincere. It's like people recognize this very quickly. So I think from my experience the vast, vast, vast majority of senior leaders, executive leaders, board members do fully understand the importance of security. Also, awareness campaigns and the successful ones usually were these ones that were tangible and where it, it related to them and was relevant, specifically relevant. Yep. So if you, I've seen that with generic awareness campaigns where you just, for example, do OWASP training in, uh, let's say, for a specific language, a specific vulnerability, and developers say, ah, that's that's awesome, that's great, but we use a different language, full stop. And you lose their attention. So I really like that, having that, making that tangible, and it must be relevant for them. I think that's, that's the point also where we get into the uh, discussion of making security relevant from a business perspective. Again, it's like it's such a commonplace. Well, it's like security should really not be a cost center. It's like it should be an enabler, blah, blah, blah. It's like everybody has to see this, that, and the other. It starts with very simple stuff, right? If I'm starting to go into an executive leadership team discussion or, in, in a, a, God forbid, in a board meeting and starting to, well, let me talk about the structure of the TCP IP package that we discovered in the last kind of meeting. It's like you, you lost them. They understand that this is important and they may even be awed by your knowledge and uh, make you feel good for a short period of time. But in, in the long run, this is not really sustainable, right? It's like it, it doesn't really convey the kind of information that senior leaders would need in order to be able to help you. It's like you need to translate this into things that are tangible, costs, benefits, risks that you can mitigate. Really have good backing for that because you will always find some one or two people who want to click deeper, who want to understand, okay, it's like you just said is like the risk for coming from bad identity and access management went up. Why? Why do you make that statement? And then you have to walk into the desk and, and explain that and sometimes actually do get technical. But it's like, I think the first order is like to really help understand that senior leadership, that what the issues are that you're facing, what you're trying to do about it and how this ultimately works across the organization. Regarding that topic, so... I usually recommend that uh, CISOs should read the financial report if there is any for a public company, for example, but that you understand what is important, Let's, for example, for the CFO, not what's important for you, but what's important for him, and then relate to 
the security to this topic. So if it's costs, if it's a cost-driven company, it's a good idea to relate to the costs and understand the impact of costs, let's say, in the big picture. So what would you say makes a good security leader? If you have such a role like you have, and you deal with uh, senior executives like CFO, CEO, COO, what is the skill, or what would you recommend to do as a new CISO that you get closer to them? First order is to understand it's like you need to first build trust. You need bridges and then you need to build trust. Just because you come in as the CISO doesn't mean people trust you. I've been in organizations that have been around for a fairly long time with either very little or almost no security kind of like capabilities. Their security was quote unquote distributed, uh, effectively meaning that such security was dealt with by the IT administrators by uh, the developers, et cetera, et cetera, which is, for a small organization, probably not a bad idea, right? Because having dedicated security staff around is something that is initially of an overhead. It's like that, that costs money and that can really have a serious impact on go-to-market capabilities, on the profitability of a company, et cetera, et cetera. But um, at the same time, it's like if you come into such an organization where security was dealt with by others for sometimes a long time, And you go, it's like, well, I'm a security dude. It's like, I know I know how stuff gets done. I can tell you what you did wrong the last five years. You will not make a lot of friends. I mean, it's just, just reality. Because the first thing they're going to say, well, it's like the last five years you weren't around. It's like, it wasn't that bad. So you come in right now and suddenly we have to like really uh, adjust everything just because you come in and say so. That's not a good strategy, right? So um, first, building that trust, making sure that you understand where that organization came from learning the history of how security was dealt with in there. It's like understanding what the um, objectives, the today's objectives, the future objectives for the company as a whole are. The amount of time you may have to put into defining the uh, right processes, establishing the correct evidence to be uh, collected against the controls, and then uh, executing that with the teams, which I have limited resources, may ultimately stifle your ability to really win that go-to-market race in terms of getting the right level of market share in the beginning. And that can ultimately harm a company much more than uh, having a couple of vulnerable libraries in a product for three months. So I think finding that right kind of like balance is like, where do you invest? Where do you invest your time? Where do you invest some of the cultural capital that you have in order to drive things forward? It really depends a lot on what the objectives are, right? Finding that right kind of like balance, I think is critically important. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move to the to the next question. Mostly interested in how do you become a CISO? I get these questions very often. So how did you first get involved in IT and security? I was working as a operator at the university data center, administering systems, learning a little bit what operational IT actually is about. And uh, I think that's that was definitely a very important experience on, on that overall journey is knowing and seeing what it really takes to keep a large cluster of computers at the time or a large supercomputer running. It's definitely something that every security person should have an appreciation for because at the end of the day, these are the kind of like uh, technologies that we have to work with on a daily basis. These are the people that we have to work with on a daily basis, and I think we'll get into that a little bit later as well. I was done with the university. I suddenly discovered that theoretical physicists are not really in super-duper high demand across the industry, and uh, my choice was either to basically stay at the university or find something else to do with my life. At the time, it was the big dot-com bubble that was coming up, so uh, there was plenty of jobs in sales and pre-sales available, and not really knowing what I was getting myself into, 
theoretical physicist, right? It's like I, I know paper and pencil, and it's pretty much it. But uh, um, I got into this kind of like a customer-facing role, which I think was one of the most important steps in, in my career, quite frankly. It's like um, being somewhat of an introvert myself, being somewhat more focused on theory and stuff like that. It's like suddenly I had to really deal with actual customers, real-life business problems, real engagement with the field, um, understanding the sales process, et cetera. And I think that is something that pretty much everybody who's in security should at least have a, a certain level of appreciation for. If you are in security and you have a chance of doing a stint as a sales consultant or something similar, solution architect, I highly recommend doing this because it definitely does help you sharpen your customer skills. It helps you appreciate how revenue generation works. And I think that's mid and long term pretty important for that journey. I continued on in various kind of research positions, and there was a lot of interoperability requirements around security. So I naturally got drawn into that kind of like general direction, ultimately ending me up at uh, MITRE. For those who don't know MITRE, it's a nonprofit organization. So I've been in there. It's like learned a lot, not only about interoperability and identity management, but uh, also about security in general. Having done that, it's like I was like, okay, this is this is really interesting, but it's it was slow work. It was very diligent, it was very deep, but it was slow. And I was like, hey, I want some action. I want to see something with what's going on in the world. And then transitioned uh, through that to uh, Demandware, which at the time was um, just past an IPO. So uh, they were looking for someone to organize uh, their their security world, and asked me if I had uh, had an interest in joining as their security officer. So I was like, you know what, I haven't done this before. Why not? So my recommendation, how do I become a CISO, is I would say it's like do not focus exclusively on understanding and learning the latest and greatest gadget. That's important, too. It's like I, I don't want to uh, de-emphasize that. But you really also got to have, have to develop an understanding for where security lives, what the objectives for security programs are, and how you can ultimately explain and eventually even sell that to uh, some of the people you're working with. One thing I, I'd like to follow up on is that I wouldn't say that everyone has more an, is more an introvert person if you are in security, but we have that tendency in, in technology in general, I think. And I believe what we miss is selling ourselves internally as well, not just externally, but also internally. Did that help you that you had that experience uh, having that, learned that on the sales side? A couple of thoughts that, that came through my mind, as you were saying, it's like security people being frequently introverts. I think that's that's true for a bunch. It's not true for, for another. If you are more on the introverted side, I think it does help if you have been forced throughout your career to stand in front of like uh, 500 or 1,000 people uh, and then uh, give a sales presentation. Maybe even a sales presentation over, uh, about something that you're not super comfortable with as far as the content goes. That is an experience that you can get in few other areas of work. And it really helps you to get a little bit more comfortable with yourself and with uh, representing some of the ideas that you have. Standing in the limelight and being exposed are definitely very humbling on the one side. But on the other side, it's like once you go through them, they do give you more confidence about yourself. And I think that's something that is important as you're facing an environment that is sometimes skeptical of what security people are saying. And for all the right reasons. Like I, I really want to make sure that um, that we understand that when security as a discipline or security uh, analysts, CISOs, are questioned in their judgment, that's an absolutely valid and important kind of process in terms of uh, arriving at a good security posture. Because I don't know everything. So like I, I know a little bit. It's like I don't know a bunch of uh, very smart people who can teach me good stuff. 
but it's like being questioned about where I stand, being exposed in a large kind of audience or or in a very tense customer negotiation, for example, as well. It's like, hey, things went really uh, south with the system you sold me last week. What happened? It's like those kind of like situations are easily transferable to what you will eventually experience in security leadership roles as well. So being prepared for that by working in customer-facing environments is really, is I think, really important. The other thing that this also does from my personal experience is it helps you build a little bit your empathy muscle, right? I mean, it's like you, you are working with people whose livelihoods, executive sales reps, their livelihood may depend on that next deal going through or not. It's like it can be a make it or break it for them being able to fully fund their mortgage payment next month in dire situations. Having an empathy for that and really understanding what, what's at stake for them is something that, again, humbles yourself a little bit and also gives you perspective in terms of like what is important uh, across the board or not. All of those are skills, I feel, that are really important in the security space and that ultimately help you also to, quote-unquote, sell yourself. I really like that. Uh, I remember the best managers that I had uh, were not talking about much. They were listening and asking good questions and were not on the forefront. So they were not like the rock stars, but they were the real rock stars because they were able to really ask the right questions and enable people doing the right things. Let's move to the next question. The specific one I really like because I like to talk about failures. So I will reveal, I think I will do that in every episode. I will reveal a failure that I did in the past. So you spent some time in Munich at university. I originally come from Munich. So in Munich, I was working for the Bavarian Central Bank at Mainframe. So even if I'm not looking that old, I started really in the dinosaur space of technology. <laughs> And one time I restarted as a really young programmer. I, I restarted the test system, but actually it was not the test system. It was the production system, so I brought down the core banking systems of Bavaria, of Total, so everything went down. It was my shortcut to the CEO. So this was my failure. I learned taking a second look at where to restart a system. <laughs> Do you have a funny thing or maybe even something more serious to share where you, where you really learned something from your past experience? Totally. It's like, uh, let's start with a funny thing first. One of the jobs that I had similar to you was like, it was actually also in Munich for Giggles, was to do uh, backups for large computers. It was at the time, it was a Cyber 2000 uh, control data. It was uh, a lot of fun. We had backup tapes. And uh, at the time, it was still necessary to enter the serial numbers of the tapes in the right order that we were stacking uh, them into the, ro the robot. If you made a mistake there, you ended up go going down and restarting the backup from scratch. I learned the hard way that it's like I really double, triple, and quadruple checked because it, it took about 15 minutes to get that stack of tapes done. But um, it's more of a kind of like anecdotes. I think one of the areas that was really interesting for me was making the transition from an environment which was much more focused on on-prem co-location kind of space into cloud space. I think I was way too conservative as we were moving forward. There were, at the time... Very interesting notions. Uh, we had separations of duty, which do even today make a lot of sense in meaningful ways. But at the same time, separation of duty in a cloud environment can sometimes be different or is like in a highly dynamic agile development environment can be different than in, in a traditional waterfall kind of like scenario. So 
being too literal with the way that I was applying older controls to newer environments really hampered my ability to influence where the organization was going. I was just like, but we have to do X, Y, Z. Yeah, but that's not how it works. But it's like, we still have to do this. So uh, I think the need to be very mindful on the one side, but also very flexible and forward-looking with regards to like, what are we really trying to achieve here when we have a, a control set is super important. There has to be a flexibility that you have to really apply things appropriately instead of like simply taking them for granted. I made that mistake probably more than once, and uh, I'm trying to learn from that. Thank you, Jared. This was really a fantastic episode. So I have to wrap it up. I could spend even hours discussing your 30-year experience and diving deeper in the interesting <laughs> parts that you did in the past. So I really enjoyed it, especially your advice in the end. So not sticking too much on how things have been done in the past, but really rethinking them, what you really want to achieve for the future. I think this is a great advice for everyone who also wants to start in security or maybe is transforming, for example, to the cloud. There are ways to do security in a different fashion. Totally. That's it for this episode. I hope everyone liked it. And if you have questions or if you want to stay in touch with us, can they get in contact with you? How's the best way? Would it be LinkedIn, Twitter or something like that? Find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. It's like you'll, you'll probably find me pretty quickly. Very good. It's the same for me. You can best find me on LinkedIn. For me, that's uh, Andreas Schneider on LinkedIn at Lacework. And Jared Buschelt is at Sprinkler. And you can find us on LinkedIn. Happy to connect with you. And hope to see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Lacework, the leading data-driven cloud-native application protection platform. Lacework is trusted by nearly a thousand global innovators to secure the cloud from build to run. Lacework delivers true end-to-end -end protection, empowering customers to prioritize risks, find known and unknown threats faster, achieve continuous cloud compliance, and work smarter, not harder, all from one unified platform. Learn more at lacework.com. Thank you.